Hey folks, this is Anatoly. I'm a co-founder and CEO of Solana, and this is the Solana Podcast. And today we have Brendan Ike, who is, amongst other things, the founder of Brave. Hi, glad to be here. Hey, it's, it's awesome to have you. I've been, I think, a user of your code for a long time. <laughs> yeah, you know, way before Brave. Uh, do, okay. you to, do you want to tell us about like your, your history and background? Because I think it's fascinating. Yeah, I... Um... I was uh, born in 1961, so I stayed up late in uh, Pittsburgh. I forget when, how late it was uh, to watch you know, the moon landing. My father was in civilian nuclear energy, and so I was kind of math science nerd as a kid. I remember he brought home these beautiful HP calculators from the mid-70s. Some of these things still... I'd rather have than the, the more recent gear. They were RPN. They were like, oh, cool. as Art Goldfinger said, divinely heavy, and you know they had real keys that wouldn't break. And I started learning, you know, math and physics. I got into physics as a major, but that was in '79. And by 1982, when I had taken a lot of math and computer science as well, I realized I wasn't going to get any summer jobs with physics. <laughs> and the department chairman had no sympathy. He said, you know, have fun mowing lawns. So I. I switched in my fourth beginning of my fourth year into math computer science where I had a lot of the prerequisites and I then went to University of Illinois at Urbana Champaign. That is, that's, that's my school. That's, wow, I didn't know you were from UIC. Yeah, but I don't don't wear the flag because I was only there two years for a master's program that kind of got hijacked by its funding source, IBM. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Which I still to this day hold against IBM. Um, but we were in the middle of the the boom in the valley around the Sun One architecture, which Sun stood for Stanford University Network, and they licensed this, you know, works, Unix workstation uh, hardware. Andreas Bechtelsheim and others had worked on two seven companies, one of which was Sun. And um, while I was at grad school on this project, it got derailed, and IBM was turning us into QA drones. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, no. I, uh, I, I heard Jim Clark talk, and I said, wow, Silicon Graphics, uh, sounds good. And so I pretty much made a beeline for that. I interviewed at Sun as well, but I, I really wanted to work for SGI. So I joined SGI in 1985, and you know, Clark had been doing um, computer graphics um, from earlier days, I think in Utah, so it was around uh, Ivan Sutherland and the, the founding people. But then he at Stanford picked up Carver Mead's book on VLSI and realized you could make things go really fast and do amazing things with graphics if you just build some custom circuits on a board. So that's what SGI did. And it was really great to be there because I was in the kernel group. So I was seeing all the code uh, from, from a very low level point of view. Um, but I also had originally come into computer science with a love for programming languages, you know, language theory, formal automata uh, theory, things like that. And uh, I got to put them together as, as SGI grew because we, we built products um, like a network monitoring suite of tools that would sniff for packets. So this was before the Berkeley packet filter. And we ended up doing our own sort of constant time filter in the kernel. And then I had to figure out how to make arbitrary expressions over all the fields in any you know depth of nesting oh, of headers so cool. match. Uh, so I compiled them to the most efficient fixed length filter I could. And then I did the rest of the filtering in user land. And I, I also wanted to help people write um, visualizers and other sort of plug-in-like uh, analyzers for different protocols. And we were trying to support Apple Talk, which was huge and really gnarly sort of uh, encoded set of protocols, Apple file sharing and all that stuff. So I ended up inventing a language. Uh, I called it Piddle Protocol. 
<laughs> interpreter description language and uh, used used Yak and and you know generated a, a parser for it and then through fairly simple data flow analysis generated C code so that the people who wanted to describe these protocols wouldn't have to write that code by hand, they could write the description in a declarative way. That's so funny, because my background, UIUC, I studied mostly computer science, like pushed down automatons. Mm -hmm. um, then got a job at Qualcomm, and I was really obsessed with how do I make this code fast. And I ended up writing an IDL compiler, actually, with Greg, our co-founder, in Haskell. Right. right. So like, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's such a funny thing to like always hit the same problems with, like, you know, it was... Ten years later, at least things get better. I I, I I troll the Haskell people because I had the Haskell report on my desk in 1995 when I was doing JavaScript, but it was it was too early, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. Miranda was still, I think, the thing. But uh, I had this sort of language background and kernel and protocols background. At SGI, I also worked with Greg Chesson, who's no longer with us. He was uh, from UIUC, and he, as a grad student in the 70s, he'd gone to intern at Murray Hill with. Ken and Dennis. Whoa, so he whoa, knew all the Unix whoa. gods. Uh, and he was pretty important at SGI. I think he and Forrest Basket, who's now a VC, really helped Jim Clark you know, build up the technical side of the company. Um, and and uh, so I worked with Greg on faster transport protocols. I think his thesis was wrong, unfortunately. He saw what Clark did with VLSI for graphics, and he said, there's no way we can have software scale to 100 megabit FTTI, so we better use VLSI for <laughs> protocols. And it turned out that Moore's Law and um, very clever optimizations like Van Jacobson did at LBL on the TCP IP code from Berkeley Unix easily kept up uh, with faster interconnects. So you can keep up with Metropolitan Ethernet gigabit speeds. Yeah, I mean, like and Intel does help a lot, right? That, that's like one of the things to definitely optimize. Uh, for. Yeah, they, too bad they, they go astray and put all this marketing garbage in and had security vulnerabilities yeah. on side <laughs> yeah, channels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just give it fast, give us faster, you know, simple processors. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's um, that's an awesome story. It, it's funny, like just thinking about my parallels, which started in like '96 was when I really started programming. I was 16, hmm. um, and then I was at UIUC in '99. And basically, yeah, studied computer science, tried to understand complex complexity theory, and because it was so hard and I could barely understand, and just maybe want to learn it more. <laughs> yeah, and maybe like four years after college, it actually started to sink in. <laughs> These things can can be a lifelong pursuit. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. yeah that, that was a lot of fun. Um, so, do you want to kind of tell us about Brave? Yeah, I, I should probably connect the SGI pass to. Uh, what I ended up doing that connects to Brave pretty directly, and that is, um, I knew Clark from SGI. I went to a company nobody has heard of. Tell me if you have called MicroUnity. No, in 1992, I was kind of bored, and SGI was a very big company. It was divisionalized, so it had these duplicated kernel groups for the multiprocessors and the single, simple low-end machines. And Jim Clark saw that the um, the VLSI that he'd done was going to be reduced to a GPU, and it was going to kill SGI. And in fact, some of the first four people, like Gary Torelli, had left to do 3DFX, things like that. Um, so I think Clark wanted to do something new. And I was going sideways at MicroUnity, which was this insane place. It was like the founder was like Howard Hughes in all the good, <laughs> good and bad ways. He was good at raising money. He raised money from Microsoft and the TCI. He, uh, he had a new fab in Sunnyvale, maybe the last fab in the Valley that I know of. Um, I could be wrong there. 
uh, he had a new process that this process genius named Al Matthews, who had done gallium arsenide for performance, and he'd fixed the 386 epitaxial latch-up problem Intel was having. And this guy could do anything. He, he built a water cooler for the first chip they were designing. Wow. He called it the Therminator, and he sandwiched um, aluminum and copper, and he used etch to make channels that were so small you had laminar flow of water. So if you pump water, you have a huge surface area to transfer wow. the heat out. Anyway, this guy could do anything. So we were all ambitious. We are going to build a programmable set-top box. That was like the second iteration. The first one was like a super cray in a five-centimeter square <laughs> <laughs> single um, um, piece of silicon. So uh, that didn't work, but I learned a lot. It was like the rest of grad school. And... I even stayed there like an idiot when I should have gone to Netscape at the beginning because Clark and people I work with at SGI invited me. But I stayed a third year. But by 1995, I couldn't stand it because it was not going to work, even though they were doing all these amazing, ambitious things. It was like Jim Clark said when I came to Netscape. He said, oh, they're doing 10 hard independent problems. Each has 1 in 10 odds. So by the multiplication principle, the odds of success are 1 in 10 to the 10th, <laughs> um, which has stuck with me. So at, at Netscape, I did very fast, and this was how they recruited me. I did what was supposed to be scheme in the browser. But when I arrived, because they were doing a deal, with Sun to embed Java, I ended up doing JavaScript. And I think I've told that story a lot, so yeah. I won't tell it here. But it did cause um, you know, uh, a big stir. I think Microsoft was complaining uh, about Netscape changing the JavaScript language between releases. <laughs> it's like, oh, the shoe's on the other yeah. foot now. <laughs> um, how's it feel? <laughs> but um, by the time Microsoft was crushing Netscape, uh, it was very clear there was no hope for Netscape, but we did Mozilla. And we had executives who wanted to sort of do an escape pod. Maybe the droids would land on the desert planet and find it, yeah. whatever. Um, but we also uh, you know, had hopes for restarting the browser market. It was not uh, obvious how to do that, but by the time we uh, did Mozilla 1.0 four years later, 1998 was the founding of Mozilla, then 2002 was the um, 1.0. We, we, we had already had um, a couple of people working on what became Firefox. So Firefox restarted the market, taught Google how to do Chrome and all that. Yeah. But I, I also realized along the way that um, around the time we did the Google search deal, which made so much money for Mozilla, uh, that, that we could um, end up being killed by Google. And I think you know this was something I talked about with other uh, senior management, and we ended up taking less revenue share than we, should, we could have because we wanted to avoid you know, triggering the creation of Chrome, which happened anyway. So it, it didn't work in, in the sense it only bought a year or so, uh, and it underpaid Mozilla. And you know, I think Firefox's main problems now, apart from really good work by a lot of people uh, that, who are still there, many of whom are recruited, is that they, uh, they can't really match the Google distribution power and marketing power. Um, but I saw how Google you know, had grown from a search engine, which really was a good search engine. And, you could go there and you could see the 10 blue links as well as a few tidy yeah. search ads. I, I saw how that evolved as they bought YouTube and DoubleClick and all the rest of it. And I realized not only is Mozilla in trouble, but we're all in trouble. It's going to be sort of a, a monopoly. It'll be maybe even more powerful than the Microsoft monopoly on the operating system was. And uh, it's going to take all our data. And this bothered me philosophically. It bothered me as a user that I was seeing retargeting where ads for stuff I didn't want or that I'd already bought was bugging me or, you know, was abusive or, or not in my interest. So um, I, I wanted to try to do something that stood the whole client-server model on its head. If you if you do a search engine, I think Larry Page said this, you're really sharing your query for the greater good of everybody because it helps them figure out what people are searching for. They can correct the query. They can optimize it. And it 
guides their hierarchical crawls because the web's so big they can't crawl at all in real time. Um, and, and so you're, you're giving up some privacy to get a better search result. That as a pure model for search, even with the clean ads, I think is a good model. It's still their strongest revenue leg. But when you start crossing it over, which they did, uh, and by 2016, they had a single ad exchange and their privacy policy said it's all kind of merged. Uh, then you've got troubles. This was not supposed to happen when they bought DoubleClick. The judge supervising the consent decree said, thou shalt not arbitrage your new display ad market you just bought with DoubleClick with your search ad market because the same brands are buying you know, keywords in one, yeah. segments in the other. Um, but you know, by the time the consent decree expired two years later, uh, I think it was off to the races. And uh, you know that'll play out how it will. There's an open antitrust case, but I, I want to do something in the market that was competitive that wasn't just a, a browser that blocks ads. I think part of the Silicon Valley, um, you know, sort of cutthroat approach that you see with Facebook, for instance, would be build something that just blocks ads and trackers super fast and tell everybody, come on board, come and use it, and you know, who cares about the damage to the publishers who rely on whatever ad revenue shares left over after all the trackers get paid and the exchanges. Didn't want to do that. I thought our early users would, would not like it. I didn't like it. And, and they had a more ecological mindset and I did too. So could we do something with cryptocurrency? Because just blocking cuts all these payment rails that are mediated through, you know, software as a service contracts or actually paper contracts and invoicing net 30 or even net 120 and payments through ACH or credit cards, or maybe even cutting a check, right? Uh, you know, quick and on, QuickBooks Online equivalent. So uh, if you block all the tracking and the ads, and really what we block is the tracking and that makes most of the ads fail or disappear, you end up cutting all the, the money flow. And that's good because the parasites don't get it, but the, uh, the host doesn't get it, the publisher doesn't get it either. So with cryptocurrency, I thought maybe the browser can reconnect more directly because you don't need intermediaries in theory. Uh, you, it depends on details of regulation that have shifted and blockchain mechanics, but uh, it, blockchain uh, promises, or Bitcoin in, at the time, we were looking at Bitcoin, promises to allow people to go peer-to-peer -peer direct, and that looked like a good way to help the publishers. And so we built a prototype on Brave after we got the first beta version out with blocking and tracking protection and fingerprinting protection. And the beta we built, we called Brave Payments, and it did use Bitcoin. And it allowed people of their own goodwill to buy some Bitcoin or have some already and send it through an anonymous, uh, centralized anonymous protocol, the second generation version of Anonize, which you can read about Anonize.org. It was a research paper by four professors from four different universities. Um, and we collaborated with a couple of the professors on it um, to make sure it was solid. Um, and we, we made a system that was good for people who were willing to donate to make up for their ad blocking. But... Uh, they had to buy Bitcoin and they had to be willing to part with it. And that's a funny story because I actually <laughs> made contact with one of the Open Bazaar guys and they've been around a while. And I thought, gee, wouldn't you guys already have been shut down like for being Silk Road? And he said, no, we have any problems there. The problem is nobody wants to spend Bitcoin. They want to hold it. <laughs> so we're looking at other other assets. Um, and that we, we saw that problem. We experienced it because, of course, I think the block size dispute and other uh, nonsense caused Bitcoin to get very slow and expensive. And we had people who were not big hodlers, so they were willing to buy, but the Coinbase buy widget that we used, which was only in the US, was extracting like a 90% fee yeah. toward the height of congestion. 
And um, we were looking. How yeah. much? How much? How much were users buying? Like in terms of dollar amounts. Um, so some of them would, you know, naively say, "I'm going to buy five dollars a month," okay. and then they saw the fees climb, and the smart one said, "Okay, okay, I'm going to buy, you know, fifty dollars or a hundred dollars, and then I'll I'll amortize the fee better." Uh, but you start losing people. This is a yeah. one of those user acquisition funnels, and every step in the funnel that has friction or a leak, users just fall right out. Uh, and you know, one of the things uh, I had to learn. Even though Firefox was just a sort of blind runtime for Google Ads, I realized, and, and Mozilla realized that we had our own acquisition and growth hacking needs. And so we learned about acquisition funnels. We had a really smart quant guy who did what he called Project Funnel Cake for Firefox. I think he ended up going to work for the Dallas Cowboys or something. So <laughs> money ball guy. Uh, and, and this is a whole art still. Uh, it, it, it depends a lot, unfortunately, on the big platforms like Google and Facebook where you run ads. And so you have to kind of fight fire with fire to get people onto your better path to let them escape from surveillance. But um, that that was on our minds, and uh, you know the ability to to get users who would be willing to understand what Bitcoin is and buy it and and part with it, it's it's too challenging. So we wanted to have a, a model that I actually considered in 2015, right when I founded Brave. We founded in late May and. In July, I had this very fun visit to the Ethereum London office, and Stefan Tawal, who was later involved with uh, Slocket and the, the DAO, <laughs> was there, and I, it was good to talk to him. He was very expansive and, and uh, generous, and I had this really short taxi ride to get there in time for the meeting. <laughs> and uh, the the idea was to do Bravecoin, and uh, somehow wasn't clear exactly how to do it, mining or. Uh, you know, Genesis Block have a, a social credit in the good sense, the old sense model, where you give people. This is a money theory from some Canadian engineer from the 30s, not the Chinese social credit system, where you you have uh, money that you get for being a citizen. So we wanted to give users something that they could spend that would help the publishers whose ads they were buying, uh, and that. Uh, that didn't work out on Ethereum right away, and I'm glad I didn't try because Stefan Twal gave me some code in Serpent and Solidity. <laughs> I put it on a shelf, and then a year later, the DAO attack happened. I looked at it and said, it's got the same <laughs> recurse till empty bug. Um, so, you know, we, we tried Bitcoin, and we learned. We did learn some good things. The obvious thing is you, you can't really get users to deal directly with raw crypto. It's, it's very painful. Even if you try to engineer it into the browser, and we had all these, you know, um, not all of them, there aren't too many, but we had people who were at first enthusiastic, but they said, you should just, you know, here's this wallet that does smart, you know, fee optimizations. You, everyone should use that. And it's like, I don't know if it exists anymore, but you can't get people to adopt two things and it's complex anyway. Or they'd say, you should use Lightning, <laughs> which in, in 2016 and 2017 was, you know, I forget when the paper was, um, it's not real. Uh, in some ways, I think you, you still have a hard time trying to use it. So. Uh, we were being given what I regard as bad advice, and, and a lot of it was this predicated on the assumption, oh, you know, it'll get better, just wait. Well, the, the game with startups is to not die, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and waiting yeah. is a good way to die. Yeah. So we, we, we switched to a, an ERC-20 token on Ethereum, I think people know that story well. Uh, we saw what um, uh, Golem, not Golem from Lord of the Rings, but the big stone yeah, the guy. Protocol. Yeah, yeah, Golem did in, in November 2016, and um, because they, they did it at a low ETH price and then sat on it, they, they did very well, I think. Uh, also, they were trying to do something that I think has has merit, um, sort of SETI at home or 
give your spare cycles out. Um, I also uh, was advising Otoy on the render token, which came later, but similar idea for the GPU. Um, and, and we were interested in, in a legitimate um, sort of token economics for a smaller market, not buffeted by speculative trades, not buffeted by big supply and demand mismatches, where we could also have this ability to give users something out of uh, a pool of tokens. So we did that and we, we were very careful about how we did it. We didn't you know, cross the streams between securities and utility tokens. Utility token is still an undefined category, but we're, we're pursuing it, uh, and I think successfully. Um, and we had to go through the whole uh, adventure of, you know, developing the code and deploying it. And that was exciting because even in 2017, there were uh, projects, people I like, like Manuel Arouse, were doing uh, Open Zeppelin, and we were like, okay, maybe we'll use your framework. But my, my friend who I arm twisted into doing the Solidity development said, no way, that's going to be a bunch of attack surface and <laughs> I have to pin to a GitHub hash and then the, code, the new version's coming out, who knows what. So we did a very simple contract and we figured we'd do more on chain over time. We also, um, but we did have a token that was useful right away. It, it uh, got into Brave uh, very quickly uh, and replaced Bitcoin. We avoided the, uh, the big fees on Bitcoin and we added um, more utility over time. So things like ads, uh, the ability to buy premium products, uh, block card is, is one example from Turneo, and there are others. Uh, and there's more coming. We're talking about uh, VPN. I don't think we've made announcements yet, but that's an obvious use case and a good one, I think, for browsers, uh, especially if it isn't like a system takeover. There, there's a, a valuable system takeover you can do on mobile. Like I use Guardian Firewall, and I see Ghostery Midnight is coming. So the, you can do things from the network level, but with TLS, unless you're going to man in the middle, there's a hard problem doing. Yep. Deep, deep packet stuff. And that's where uh, the adversary is moving into the first party content, the tracking and the ads. Um, so we, with Brave, we have a proper place where TLS terminates to do all this on behalf of the user because all browsers do this. All browsers see your history. You have to trust them. They all see your cookies. Um, and that uh, allows us to then offer users the ability to opt into a better model, what we call Brave Rewards. And it's like a loyalty point system, but you can, you can you know, give back but also get to give back. And if you get to give back, it's from seeing private ads that are matched only on device in your browser. No demand partners tracking you, no ad exchanges on servers. Uh, instead, we take a fixed catalog of offers that slowly updates. It's like an anti-malware, anti-phishing list. And uh, the machine learning that runs only in the browser when you opt into this program picks the best ad at low frequency, up to 20 a day. We don't want to get gamed. We have to do anti-fraud since we're giving out um, know sort of token grants and we're you know subject to civil attacks so there's a there's some degree of of uh anti-fraud obligation there that no blockchain solves right blockchains can't easily prove humanity yeah of course not. <laughs> right <Yeah>. or ever <laughs> right yeah that that is the hardest oracle problem right is a, are you a human <laughs> it, no and people uh, have noticed google recapture version 3 has moved from making you solve a puzzle because the bots can do that to um, uh, you know, just tracking you and building up an idea of whether yeah. your event stream looks legit. Um, so you guys published like some amazing, I think, numbers recently, like 10 million monthly active users. Yeah. Um, do you think, like, are those 10 million users, do they love Brave or do they love BAT? Is there like... It's a good question. When we had uh, the Brave reward system only on desktop, um, 
it came to Android and then finally to iOS, which is cool. Um, got, all got approved, everything, including ads. Um, we we had like 40% of the user base at the time uh, opted in. Like if you did a look back on wallet activity over 30 days, that was great. Now it's declined since we went to mobile because I think it's harder to um, make mobile work. It's just a smaller viewport and so on. But we're, we're going to drive it up. It's around 13% blended, and it's still higher on desktop, opting into our Brave Rewards program, which is the only way we, we make money apart from things like DuckDuckGo search deals that are also small revenue now. So we're making some revenue, but we're not profitable. So a lot of our thinking is, you know, what can we do to get more users to opt in and um, benefit from this? And there's where we find out how many of them are here just for the speed, how many of them actually want to just free ride in the cutthroat sense I mentioned earlier. And I think we still have a lot of people who are willing to give it a try. It, it is a more complex story, but like I said at the beginning, and I think I've never had the, uh, the inclination to change this, we want to not just block, we want to improve the web's funding mechanisms. And, and it doesn't have to be exactly like we do it. There are pieces that can be standardized. You're seeing payments request API, admit crypto as well as something that goes through the credit card interchange uh, process. Um, so we're, we're, we're among the vanguard, I think, along with Apple among the big, and uh, Mosul is now doing tracking protection by default. Um, for years they weren't. Um, and people speculated, I didn't know if it was excluded from uh, their ability to do it, default protecting of against tracking because of their search contracts. Now. I didn't see that in the old days. I'm not supposed to talk about search contracts, but I don't think it would be practical to do it. I do understand, though, from what I've heard, Bing doesn't let you get a search deal with Bing if you're a, an ad blocker. And so people, you know, I don't know how this is written. People worry about um, the incumbents using uh, market power yeah, to, yeah. to prevent tracking production. But now, thanks to Apple and Brave with Mozilla and a Samsung browser as well, uh, you're seeing Western browsers start to, to block tracking. Microsoft's Chromium-based Edge is doing it, though they're they're, they're kind of <laughs> wussing out, in my view, on a few things. They're trying to not break so many cases that they think are important. With Brave, we, we named it because our users we knew would have to face some breakage. They would have to face some hostility or adversarial behavior by, you know, maybe a publisher or maybe a publisher's uh, vendor that was doing anti-ad blocking. The usual way this manifested starting in 2015 on Wired is you, you go to the site, you're running a real ad blocker, and it does a little iframe with a test load from a block domain. It says, hey, you're using an ad blocker. Either you know lower your shields, which is our metaphor, or uh, subscribe, which at this massive amount that overpays and cross-subsidizes, yeah, yeah. or, or go away. Yeah. Right? This is user hostile. And every site that did this in 2015, starting with Wired, had their Alexa charts go down yeah. <laughs> over the next few months. Now, you had at the same time you had companies like SourcePoint and, and there are many others try to say, hey, we'll recover that ad blocker lost revenue. And it sounds good. If you if you looked at like Wired or Pitchfork from Con and Ask, you'd see maybe 30% ad blocker incidents on desktop. Turn that around, it's a 43% win. Now, the problem is you can't turn it around by attacking the user and nagging them. And if you plead with them, maybe even give them a break on price, you're still asking them to sign up with a credit card or PayPal. How many times do people want to do that? How many times do you want to trust your credit card? I mean, I subscribe to FT. I think we get Wall Street Journal through the company, but I'm not going to subscribe all over the place, especially if I'm overpaying and yeah. only reading a few articles. Um, Apple News has bragged about how many people have signed up, but they don't talk about how many people are paying, and that's, I think, a very small number. So there's this problem on the, on the web. It's not just that advertising was the original sin as the 
tripod founder wrote in the Atlantic. It's that I think uh, people are conditioned, you know, from television even to expect free content, television and radio. Um, and, and now with ad blocking, with privacy, real privacy concerns, political abuse or psychological warfare abuse, I think they have a reason to protect. So the laws are reflecting this and the antitrust is like gravy on top. I think we're heading into a world of privacy as a, a default setting. And it may not be a marketable unitary good. You can't say, hey, I'm private. Because you're starting to see that too. You're seeing people put the privacy perfume or the halo over their head when they're actually, it's bumping into the horns because they're still doing anti-privacy things, but they're trying to say they're private because they realize now it's valuable to lead users. And that consciousness is not going away. That doesn't reverse easily. You can't just say, oh, forget about privacy. Everything's good again. Let's go back to tracking. Do you, do you think that... Um... Cryptocurrency is a shot at actually upending that model. I, I think it's important, and and this is, I think, why a lot of people are hopeful about Brave. And I've talked recently uh, in Lisbon at Web Summit about how we can boost a lot of uh, cryptocurrencies and tokens. Whatever people want to use, we'll help match make because we can we can without having to run a bunch of nodes ourselves. We can use a partner like Bitco, for instance, to get a lot of assets quickly uh, strung together between any creator, publisher of a website or a YouTube channel, and any user who wants to, you know, really send them something big and may not want to use BAT for whatever reason, that's fine. So we're going to add more crypto assets and support um, that's direct sales. So you guys are going to support the things outside of BAT? Yeah, but not in the Brave Rewards framing because it doesn't make sense. Yeah. That, that's where you're you're dealing with people who will never understand crypto. They will never manage their key. They'll, they'll copy pasta and send to the wrong address and have tragic losses, yeah. even if small. So what we want to do is segment our user base, like, like you do when you make a, a browser or other product that has a large reach. You have sort of expert users and lead users who are really informative because they actually help you improve your product. Sometimes they are creative and sometimes you hire them. And then you have um, people who are more uh, savvy, but not as technical or not as able to spend time on it, but they are influential. They upgrade their friends and family over the holidays, things like that. Uh, but you get to people who just will never deal with raw crypto well directly. And the browser, to me, is the perfect uh, app for um, making crypto ubiquitous. You, we said this in the 90s. Jamie Zawinski wrote a nice piece that's somewhere on Mozilla Wiki about unity of interface. If you're if confronted with the Internet as I knew it in the 80s, it was a bunch of protocols. It was all text. And we loved you know, hacking into um, Stanford time sharing systems when I was a student. And it was all deck, mini computers, and we would telnet in and we'd poke around and we'd find great big pascal programs that did adventure games it was a lot of fun <laughs> but um it was a mess and and what i think was brilliant about the browser from tbl on to mark and eric bina at uac was this everything's uh, a page of links and you can click on a link and it can do whatever protocol is needed and you can rationalize mail two links into this which happened in a lot of other links now http kind of took over tls kind of took over this happens in protocols you get sort of yeah constriction points where you get an evolutionary kernel that has to be stable and everybody builds above and below it. So we've had metropolitan ethernet come in below it when we used to have really, really slow modems. And we've had uh, high level protocols uh, above TLS that are unfortunately mostly captured by big sites. So th these are the interesting protocols that I think should be blockchain protocols. This is like Kyle's multi-coin thesis. Um, but it's hard because there's so, so many hard trade-offs like the latency is a problem to conceal, um, that security is an issue, especially if you take away the trusted third party, which is a security hole, but 
a lot of people will trust Facebook and Google and they have signed up or their data has been captured. If you start to um, try to use blockchain more directly, you can fall into the raw crypto, unusable or too hard to use trap. You can run into cases where you have to be pretty technical to, to cope. So the browser, I think, is the, the right place to make affordances, make that unity of interface, make um, user interface for crypto that works across all sorts of protocols and services. So you guys think you would be able to support keys for basically private, have users host your private keys in a Brave browser for arbitrary protocols in theory. Yes, and, and let me talk about that a little bit. I think one of the things we did in Brave Payments, the Bitcoin prototype that was useful, was we, we used BitGo multi-sig. So we did essentially two of two. We had a two of three wallet that had a key in the browser, which could be lost. People wipe their Windows yeah. user data. Uh, we had a key uh, with BitGo that was needed to do use their API. And we had a singleton key that we used to create the wallet that was ours, but we we published and maintained the public key and we burned the private key. So that was why it was two of two instead of two of three. And, you know, th there was, uh, you know, a missed opportunity there to do some kind of third key with a key recovery service, some kind of backup, because people do lose their keys. But we always said, don't put too much Bitcoin into this. That's why people were buying $5 yeah. and paying <laughs> four fifty in fees. But but the I think the the, the real uh, win there was the multi-sig opcodes in in Bitcoin script and everything was efficient and more secure. <laughs> so we got to Ethereum, we're like, where are the opcodes? <laughs> and then the parity hack. You know, it was yeah. it was not obvious how to do this. But I do think uh, with the right use of multi-sig or other methods, maybe even uh, you know splitting keys into shared secrets, we can we can make. Key management uh, easy. Users shouldn't have to copy and paste addresses. They shouldn't have to worry about keys. They should use, you know, Trezor or Ledger hardware. Each of those is a bit of friction in the funnel, but I think it's getting better. And if you if you do have the time, if you do survive as a startup, you will get to a point where I think more and more people can just do this. And that's that's the vision. It, it should be even easier than it is with with a, a Ledger wallet. Because I've I've seen people struggle to use those yeah, too. Yeah, I I honestly don't use hardware wallets. Yeah, <laughs> and some people still yeah. do that uh, for anything for passwords. And, that, um, and that's because I worked you know kind of low level hardware, and I just know the number of bugs that can exist there that you will find two years later. Yep, and pocket lint and you know evil made risk and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, still, we, we we like Ledger. We use it uh, at Brave. Um, we're we're trying to live long and prosper with crypto so that we get to the point where, you know, whatever happens with the winning um, consensus protocols and so on and so forth. And that's why I do like Solana, right? Um, I think we should talk about that too. Uh, the low level coding for speed and looking at actual hardware performance characteristics and, and projections, how, how hardware is evolving should should matter and should allow for, for, you know, faster blockchains. But whatever happens there, I think Brave will be ready. It'll be like, in the 90s, you cared about Gopher and Waste and, and FTP as well as HTTP. Now, those protocols died, but the browser is still there. The, the link is still there. So I want the same to apply for crypto. I, I honestly don't think that the protocols, blockchain protocols, matter as much as the key management side. Like once once we can get users to like securely hold keys like and know that they have this key, it doesn't matter what... like. Basically, I see Solana as like we have a SaaS platform. Yeah. If you have the key, you can access it. And there, there is, That's you know, <laughs> hardware's getting better. We're also working with YubiKey on just solving the password problem. Now, then you have a physical yeah. key and you can lose that or can get smashed or 
whatever. But um, there's no free lunch there. Uh, and, and so I, 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 I'm with you. I think uh, key management and, you know, no copy pasta to send the wrong address uh, yeah. problems. And those can both be solved uh, very well, by, you know, by apps. But the browser is really those, the universal. Those are app. hard problems. The copy pasta problem is the DNS problem. And there's been like years of attack vectors through like just character changes from Cyrillic to, yeah. to Latin, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Yeah. In fact, we, we didn't, I don't know what we're doing now. We didn't do Punicode. Expansion, so you could more easily see these attacks in Brave in the early days. In spite of all this and the somewhat centralized nature of the DNS and, and all sorts of problems like no encryption, uh, it's still kind of hanging together. So, you know, I'm technologically an optimist. I have to be. Uh, as a you know, as someone who used to write software, I was always neurotic and pessimistic, but that kind of, I'm the type who gets charged up by that. But on the sort of macro trends, I'm an optimist, and I think we will get better solutions over time i tend to think like the really hard problems don't have easy solutions like there's always going to be like like dns yeah but it'll work but then you're like there's yeah. like always corner cases that just like make it ugly of, let's like, use yeah. dns over https yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah and then people hack it together okay that, that works now um, if you trust the big right host yeah but my theory and this is just my experience growing up in the 90s is that um, we will see this inflection point in crypto that we saw in the 90s and late 90s when kind of Friendster came out of nowhere. Like nobody, like I was working, I was learning how to program coding in C, playing around with Linux, like 96. And I used the internet and I could not possibly predict that the social graph would have been the thing that the internet creates mm -hmm. that was like so valuable that you know, Facebook is like half a trillion dollar company. Yeah. Like that would have been mind boggling to me. Right. Like, you know, I thought operating systems was the most important thing. Right? Things were more local. Yeah. Then, right? yeah. Even though there was the internet and the early web, um, there was something called advogado.org, which was this interesting early social network for Linux hackers. And it had uh, some kind of reputation system seated by four people, um, including, I think, Linus and Miguel yeah. Tejasa. And I, I like the sort of nerdy algorithmic, you know, data max flow algorithm they used, but I think it, it was vulnerable to civil attacks. And it, it, it um, and still, I, I was inspired enough by it. I tried something when I was still at Netscape AOL. I said, hey, AOL, you guys should build something like this for recommendations and socializing. <laughs> that was 2002. Um, and yeah, Zuck hit it at the right time. Um, so, so the right time, I think, was when we saw about three, four hundred million users of, on the internet. Like in '96, it was forty million. Yeah. Right now, we have my understanding is about forty million wallets out there, and if you combine active addresses and Ethereum and Bitcoin, it's about a million multi-actives. Yeah, it's not big enough. Yeah. That's right. And and there's some uh, duplication among yeah. people. So like, if we actually get to like 300 million crypto users, right? I, I kind of think that's something that we don't anticipate will actually come out of it. Like, I think so too, yeah. yeah. I think in general, sort of broad multi-coin thesis, we'll have, because privacy is already on people's minds for lots of good reasons, and now coming in law, into force in California uh, and still being lobbied, by miscreants that by the time we get to that that scale i think we'll have a, a much more uh decentralized and private uh internet that's my hope yeah yeah I, the, that's my hope too i think yeah i think the challenge is figuring out a way to get 
private keys into humans to humans and the copy pasta issue right, yeah. the dns problem um all, all these things have early solutions right we look ens or um handshake um you know we're, we're talking to those those guys uh it's just you can't pick a winner and, and bet all your money on it in the long term because you don't know what's going to happen. It could be that that was a, an informative negative result, which is very important in science. You have to learn from these things and um, do another version that's better. And what I would hate to see is, you know, picking the winner or the kind of culty maximalism that says it can only be this this one thing that was magically given to us by some god and can never change and it has all the right parameters uh, in spite of what that god wrote. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I agree with um, Gunn about yeah. the need for, for better uh, distributed systems approaches. The, 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 uh, so his point, and I love this analogy, is that um, burritos are strictly better than tacos in every, in every dimension. Every way you can think about tacos versus burrito, burritos is just better. And then there's no trade-offs with going with burritos. Do you think that there's like the burrito blockchain or is it always going to be a trade-off? <laughs> yeah, the tacos, um, when I was a kid, I kind of liked the seasoning, but the meat fell off the edge. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I hate to, you know, say that there's, uh, you know, burritos are better than tacos because I'll get attacked by the taco fans. But I, I think <laughs> the, I, I'll, I'll approach it indirectly by saying that in general, I've seen enough technological evolution that's saying that this is the one true way. You know, even if you don't do it in the culty way, if you have specific technical arguments, um, it's risky because people will think of better ways over time. And you need to be open to uh, innovation and not, you know, reject it on, on some you know, wrong, I think wrongheaded, uh, false principle. And I see that in crypto a lot. Now, I, of course, you get a lot of people who are interested in sort of making, uh, you know, uh, realizing some gain from speculating on it, sort of, uh, sort of things that people used to do like in the early 90s with the U.S. comic book market that kind of destroyed yeah. the whole business. Um, but, um, and, and whatever you say about speculation and uh, things that I think are more legit in markets like, um, uh, you know, HFT or uh, just options and, and shorting. These are necessary markets, but they also can be uh, sources of leverage, which can be excessive. So I'm a little worried about crypto now being subject to excessive leverage, as happened with <laughs> uh, you know the light unpleasantness in 2008. Yeah. Uh, and if you if you have too much leverage and indirection, and you don't kick the tires, you can have fraud and counterparties who are deluded or deluding themselves, deluding you. Uh, and then it all blows up. And this is something you know, Hyman Minsky, the economist, studied. And it, it happened after he died, but he predicted it would happen. He was right. It happens periodically. It happened even when you were on gold. The problem with the old you know, metallic money was there was not enough as things grew and people moved to cities and we got post-feudal economies. So you had to come up with some alternative for money. Even the English had trouble in the 1870s with the long, the long depression and banks were issuing script, which in some ways was like a free figure in crypto. Yeah, yeah for um, sure. Yeah, money, money has a, like from a geo kind of geo macro perspective, money is, I think, quite more sophisticated right now than crypto. And I, I think this is something that uh, we all need to work hard on because I think there is, again, consciousness around privacy. There's also consciousness around money. I like this thing that, um, who's the big Bitcoin blogger? And, a pomp, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he did a good tweet. I, I liked it and retweeted it. He said that um, that what we're doing, Naval says this too, is we're, we're making money more open by making it 
technological, open source, cryptographic, and decentralized. And more people will learn about money. Now, will they learn about all the counterparty risk and all the derivatives tricks? Um, the, the people I know who worked on Wall Street said, yeah, we were basically charging a lot of money for doing very clever yeah. tricks, um, some of which were not socially beneficial. But I think more people will learn about this. And I'm also bullish about crypto on that basis. I don't you know, think you'll get rid of central banks easily. Um, I mean, might... it's amazing how many people have become securities law experts and like derivatives and counterparty risk experts yeah. like over the last two years right yeah and, and there's so much nonsense in economics I, I think i said this on a telegram group we're both and i said it's the official economics is courtiers and mountebanks yeah <laughs> um but but more people are are thinking beyond the the failed paradigm some of which were just fake theories to hide bad behavior um and and they're thinking about how does money actually work how does credit issuance work does it actually work according to the textbook fractional reserve process no it doesn't uh, things like that are important to understand and if there are uh, more democratic approaches that don't have instabilities or concealed leverage i think that could be good do you think crypto is money like because now that's a good question. There, there's a traditional view of this uh, that says you have to have the face of the sovereign on it. And <laughs> what that really means is you have to have force behind it. And I think I got into an argument with uh, Eric Voorhees or somebody about this on Twitter. I said, no, the reason the U.S. dollar is still the strong fiat is because the U.S. has, you know, the military, military spending. Yeah. I wouldn't say the best military. <laughs> I wish them well, but I, I can't be sure. And then I get tested and it might be ugly. Um, but yeah, it's force. Uh, and, you know, if you're a libertarian, you abhor this unless it's used for a very narrow set of purposes. I used to be a libertarian. I think in, in practice, uh, we've seen that there are other problems than naked force, which I agree can be abused by governments and is abused all the time. There's also something that happens with private companies. They form monopolies or cartels. They conquer adjacent markets. They uh, coerce consent. So consent can be engineered. This is you know Chomsky's phrase, but it applies to all sorts of scenarios. Is proof of work kind of like a replacement for naked force, though? Well, then you say who's got the most, uh, you know, capital to build, you know, that's, miners, that's mining fine. rigs on, on, <laughs> on, you know, hydro dams. Sure, right? sure. I, but that, that's that's fine, though, right? Well, then the, the, it may be fine, maybe that you're helping the old rich stay rich. Now there are there is new money. There are the nouveau riche, the parvenus of crypto, right, <laughs> who come in and uh, are not, you know, from a multi-generation dynastic family. Uh, of questionable repute who inherited their wealth. They're actually, they made a bunch of money and maybe they'll do something more innovative outside of the box. So, you know, there's people like Naval uh, are influential and I, I do hope that that happens. Um, is there something even more um, like the social credit sense that I used earlier where you can have, maybe some country will do it. They'll have a crypto-based currency and they'll stake citizens. This is like a UBI or a social credit model they'll just stake them with some recurring amount for being citizens um that could happen i don't know if it is happening we've, we've seen the toronto or the ottawa ontario experiment excuse me uh with ubi i think i haven't yeah I, um ubi has gotten you know very political in ways that i think don't look like what i'm talking about what i'm talking about is more like um what maybe 21.co wanted to do back in the early days, you'd run you know, Bitcoin miners in your water heater, things yeah. like that. <laughs> it doesn't work for Bitcoin because of mining at scale advantages. Yeah. But the idea is, is plausible. And if we could get to a point where uh, more people could participate in what has 
really been for centuries this sort of almost uh, alchemical and corrupt or easily corrupted process uh, of, of banking and central banking. I think that would be good. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I like. I think that again, talking about protocols, the proof of work systems I think are quite different from proof of stake. Yes, but they, you can't really swap one for the other. The proof of stake is more like the rich get richer. I think uh, there's a risk there. Uh, I mean, I don't know. Like, I think to me, proof of stake seems like I'm building a Byzantine fault tolerant computer. Yes. I'm going to use this this mechanism. Right. I'm building like a replacement for force, right? Like for <laughs> proof of work seems like a, the right approach. Yeah, and, and there's real technical differences. Like Nakamoto right. consensus is amazing because it's an open network. Right. Um, seems like having an open network and proof of stake is still proving challenging, um, right? You, you have to be careful about uh, a different threshold and you have to... Um, I think it's on a, at the consensus level, like my gut feeling is that the attacks are about the same. About the same, okay. Uh, I'm kind of uh, reading it from a sense of smell. It, it, it may be equally good, but there's something, like you said, about proof of work that is more um, open. Yeah. Uh, the thing that I don't like, I think we may agree on this, is, is trying to graft governance onto... Of course. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah gov governance is, uh, like, again, I'm an operating systems nerd. And to me, doing on-chain governance is like just an enormous attack vector. Because yeah. politics, right? Politics can be gamed all the time. It, and that's really what it's for in some ways. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't mean that in the... It, it, gamed in a good way would be the best sense, where it's definitely a human thing. It involves um, what Don Knuth said, uh, can't be mechanized yet, so it's an art, not a science. He said that about writing programs, right? Uh, now, you know, we can get to the point where deep nested neural nets can write certain programs just by sort of, you can do it with simulated annealing, yeah. right? Uh, a revolutionary algorithm like a COSA stop genetics algorithm, but it, it's not going to create a new interesting program like a Unix kernel or a, a Mosaic browser. It's, it's just going to kind of glom things together, glom some DNA together. Um, but I, I think uh, at the level of politics, we're nowhere near close to automating politics, right? You read science fiction books and some of the hardest have people going back to the golden age with Asimov and others, where they had these weird names for it. Was it psycho history or whatever? They, they thought everything would be sort of algorithmic. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. If we could predict the future, then it's not going to happen. <laughs> AGI. John Carmack's working on it, so uh, maybe, maybe when that happens. My science fiction theory is that for something like that to truly exist, it needs to run in a completely fault-tolerant machine. So really, blockchain is really a prerequisite for this. Mm. You know, if you think of the universe as being, you know, lazy evaluated from the end state down mm -hmm. to now, mm -hmm. and for us to build the next, like, this AGI that's going to, like, live the next billion years, it needs to run on a computer that cannot fail, right? And therefore, here we are <laughs> building this thing. <laughs> there are deep waters here. Right. The people who believe we're in a simulation. Well, in, yeah. yeah. Well, we, we don't have to believe we're in a simulation. You know, the ants are not aware of the anthill, right? And so... We're seeing, you know, cosmic <laughs> voids and, and uh, strange relations between what seem to be, if you believe, you know, the Hubble sort of modern cosmological model based on what Edwin Hubble wrote down. It's not a constant. Uh, you end up thinking, well, maybe there's, maybe the, the simulation is running out of uh, cycles, so they're erasing things. <laughs> <laughs> That's very possible. Uh, I don't know. My, my only 
again, I know nothing about astronomy, like real science. That stuff's kind yeah, of yeah. hardly science. <laughs> yeah. my, my perspective was like, you know, okay, black holes seem like kind of analogous to the Big Bang, and then they evaporate, so our universe seems like it's evaporating, right, as, as it's expanding. The, this is an open question based on even recent results, whether it's still expanding or they got something wrong then. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, my physics past is, is too far for me to be uh, any more than an interested amateur. But uh, And one of the things I didn't like about physics was it got into this state, you know, that Thomas Kuhn, the philosopher of science, has written about where you have to wait for the old generation to die out before you can really try new paradigms. It, things get captured just because of academic careerism or, you know, maybe darker forces. I don't know. You end up with people who sit on a theory and sort of mine the edges of it. And the theories are meant to be broken. This is yeah. Feynman yeah. says, hate your theories, right? Don't love them, uh, and so we we have to have a new generation. And I think this is this is you've seen this with blockchain in the sense that what did we have before blockchain? We 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 had the web. And Nutella. I mean, like in the, the the darker side of the web, right? You had Napster, Nutella. You had a yes. bunch of weird protocols. Because because yeah. yeah, and and you had you know David Chaminos were doing amazing work back uh, long ago, um, but. Um, and I remember friends who went to zero knowledge systems um, from Netscape or people I knew through that network who then eventually ended up at Mozilla. Um, the time wasn't right. The hardware wasn't right. I think uh, even um, G. Maxwell said this, right? Back in, in the, the early days of Bitcoin, they, they couldn't do the ZKPs efficiently. And now thanks to good, great research, we can. So yeah, um, better cryptography, which I think will help uh, along with the better consensus and you know, faster Extra tech. Yep. Solana. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, we're pretty close to being done. We're basically in like validating everything. We did a huge, like 111 page report, of, like security audit on the architecture. And now we're building out a bunch of test cases just to get that final, final polish. Now I've seen bold claims from you that are limited by speed of light and some, some fairly fast yeah, um, software yeah. on the nodes. In yeah, so we have like neutrino producers and detectors, so they can just go through the earth. Oh, that'd be nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. If we can count the right number of neutrinos, I guess they solved the missing neutrino problem. I don't know. Uh, it'd be cool if we had some some uh, you know non causality violating uh, you know quantum correlated faster. <laughs> anyway. Uh, it, uh, if you can, if you guys can pull it off, that'd be awesome. I think uh, the other thing that happens, I've seen this in software over time, is you don't necessarily have um, people all switch horses, but they can then upgrade their horses because in software it's easier to copy design than code, yep. which you can screw it up. Yeah. Sharing code is always hard. Um, yeah, forking's I mean, easy now. Yeah. I mean, open source people don't realize is like the code is actually not worth much. Like understanding the idea and getting somebody convinced that, hey, you should pay attention to this and understand it. Yep. That and that's, the people who maintain it, the, right. the, the depth of knowledge is valuable. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's especially for a complex system like this. I think that the humans are like the way more important than the code. It's the thing we still can't replace. Yeah. Or it, automate. It is, to your point, like this 10-10 problem, like building this whole thing, like this whole new protocol, right? Like, there's not 10 computer science problems, there's there's three or four, but each one of them is like pretty tough. <laughs> and and you've, you've, you've got independence, so you've got multiplication. Yeah, you know. yeah. Um, it's something to watch out for. I feel like uh, you can hedge that. I've learned how to hedge that over time by 
sort of making the risks additive instead of multiplicative, trying to make some smart dependencies that either will work and everything's less risky, or if they fail, you can switch to something yeah. else. But you can have setbacks for yeah. sure. That is, it's a, that is like a challenge, I think, for everyone that's working on, on layer one. What, what else should we cover? I think we kind of went through the, the whole... Yeah, I mean, it, it, does, it doesn't surprise anybody that Google is working around privacy regulations. And, you know, the problem with these regulations, especially the European ones, they have a solid basis in law going back 20 or more years, maybe 40 years in some cases, in treaties, talking about data protection in a fairly abstract way. But law, even if you turned it into a programming language or used Haskell, is, is too abstract. So you have to actually apply it, the regulators to understand what's going on on the ground. And that is taking time. So the data protection authorities in Europe are enforcing GDPR. And a lot of people who have an axe to grind said GDPR was terrible. It just helped you know, Google and Facebook and hurt everybody else. Not yet. Not so fast. It's probably going to hurt Google and Facebook even more than it has with the current um, problems they've had with fines, which... Too often are a cost of business. Um, we see this with bank corruption and big pharma. But 4% of annual turnover is substantial. And some of the cases, like the complaint we made, don't seek a fine. They're saying real-time bidding, where your personal data is broadcast through ad exchanges to all sorts of unknown parties, is a breach. And if the data protection authorities agree, that may say no more real-time bidding. It's going to change to be stripped of all these um, segment identifiers, latitude, longitude, which are all personal data for you, uh, which yeah. definitely can be used with geofencing to do very hostile things. Um, so I think the the time you need to for the regulators to understand and act is longer than people expected, but it's happening. And then in the U.S., there's been uh, on in both sides of the aisle in our fake Tweedledum and Tweedledum or partisan system. There's been a rising consciousness and aversion to the big tracking parties. Certainly Facebook, but also Google's getting, you know, taking its hits, and I think appropriately. And that's independent of the antitrust case. And Elizabeth Warren just on her platform takes the black letter law of 15 U.S.C., you know, 1 through 38, the the antitrust law in, in the federal law, uh, register and applying it to them, saying you, you, you need to be broken up. I'd be surprised if that happened. It would be a big political um, effort. It would cause turmoil. Microsoft was almost broken up, though. If you remember the USB Microsoft case that was based on Microsoft um, tying Internet Explorer into Windows, abusing its monopoly on the operating system to take over and conquer the browser market. Yeah. And the remedy that the judge rushed to was to break up Microsoft. And the only reason it didn't happen was he rushed and didn't even have a hearing. And the appeals court said, what are you doing? And they threw it back and Microsoft settled with DOJ and kept the company in one piece uh, and was fairly traumatized by it. I think this, this helped Firefox because they were so traumatized by that case. They said, we can't do the web anymore. It's, it's too painful and we, we get in trouble. And, Poor us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, there, you know, there are workarounds. And uh, Apple recently on the WebKit blog had something they discovered. I think Google disclosed it to them, but it looked like there was a hole in their intelligent tracking prevention around uh, posts, post method form submission or something. And it, you know, it's good that Google disclosed it. It was um, good that Apple's fixing it. But the web is complex enough that you can always find ways to track and fingerprint. I distinguish the two because um, fingerprinting is more like statistical device um, 
bucketing so you can put me in as an iPhone user. You can be sure I have an iPhone 10 or whatever. Um, but tracking is a persistent identifier. And this is where you're actually seeing people seriously with straight faces late to the party in California saying to the attorney general, hey, we need to have a loophole for a persistent identifier for opt out or some some obviously abusable uh, yeah. thing for, for, you know, the Amber Alerts need, need a, a tracking identifier. No, they don't. But, uh, yeah, loopholes from the, the incumbents will be, you know, loophole exploitation from incumbents is no surprise. And we have, at Brave, we haven't tried to say we need regulatory relief to succeed as a company. That's not our position. We've built a better product, and we're getting a lot of people now saying, hey, this is so much better than Chrome, I can't go back. It's like being in quicksand. And I, they see now that Google is an ad business, uh, whatever that means. It's, it's an ad tech and a search business. It's still the big, big business. But it needs that data, and it ties... Uh, surveillance of that data directly into the Chromium code, as we found out. You have to stub it and strip it out or it'll happen. Uh, so uh, we're doing work in the market to advance so, so, things, so but the, the regulation matters too. So, so the letter that you guys wrote identified uh, tracking inside the Chromium code or was the server side on the Google? Uh, the, the one about the um, workarounds was about Google um, doing things with um, server side and, and, okay. and JS. But the, the the bigger issue I think for us is is whatever workarounds they seek, there's this um, you know sort of conflict that hasn't been resolved between people who think like the IAB is still trying to flag this is the Interactive Advertising Bureau that represents all the intermediaries they claim to represent publishers they don't do a good job it's mostly about the trackers and they say you know oh GDPR doesn't really mean it or oh but we need this exception or oh here's a consent framework because part of the Regulation is not just about data protection. It's about consent and I mentioned earlier consent can be engineered One of the things that GDPR does I think that's good is it says consent must be for data to be processed for a specific purpose And that means like when Facebook took your mobile number and they said we'll use this to secure your login We'll send you a text you know, or a temporary access number on a text message they couldn't use that number for anything else, but of course, almost by accident, it might even have been an accident, it went right into the ad targeting. Yeah. Uh, and they got fined for that, I believe, but uh, not enough. So th there is uh, you know, uh, purpose specificity or purpose limitation, as well as um, how, how much data of rights. do you think is real intention with these executives versus just engineers that are like, I have this SQL table, if I take these numbers, I get better results of my OKRs, right? <laughs> I think that, that that's a big part of it. And, and you see this with, I think the Facebook uh, mobile number being used for ad targeting may have just been a legit accident. They have this huge vector that they use. It's got juicy bits of data and they just threw that into the mix. It just kind of fell into it by default. So you, you have this problem in security. When the defaults are wrong, you end up with all sorts of attacks. Um, and that, that's that's part of it. I think the this has been written about by ex-Googlers better than me, Steve Yegi, and somebody whose name I forget who talked about how you get promoted for the wrong things at Google now. <laughs> uh, between Yegi's post and that, I, you know, I, I actually think Google is struggling uh, to be innovative. And in some ways, you could say what Yegi said. They're, they're kind of just looking at what Facebook does and then trying to fast copy it. You know, Facebook has instant stories, which they copied from Snap, so we're going to have AMP stories, you know, AMP and Gmail, put, Amp and search, uh, which is tying in an antitrust sense. Uh, whatever they do, it's a big company too. And I think the other thing I've learned, even though I've had a short resume, only if, like SGI, MicroUnity, Netscape, and then Mozilla, which is kind of a continuation, and now Brave, is is that you need 
some kind of uh, small company or simulation of a small company to innovate. So the big companies that still do this well or did it well do simulate that. And and there was a time when we were early on in Firefox talking to Sergey a lot. Was, he was my main contact among the founders. And I was stunned to hear that there was an engineering manager who had 10,000 like reports. It was very flat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't doing personal reviews, I guarantee it. Um, but it was so flat that it was more like efficient little companies yeah. all doing stuff. Yeah, I remember hearing about that time at Google. I think it's definitely passed. It's over. Yeah. That's my experience too, like uh, working at a big company. I spent most of my career at Qualcomm. Qualcomm, yeah. And I was lucky enough to be on teams where I really wasn't aware of anyone above my like manager level. Like I didn't know how long the chain went. I didn't know who the, the name of my VP or any other person above. Just I kind of knew the CEO's name, but that's about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Qualcomm was a great partner when we were doing Firefox OS, and and yeah. but what we did was we got down to the Michael Bynes level, and then we were really dealing with yeah. the quality yeah. team. Yeah. We got we are super lucky to have that person working for us. Oh, he's still here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He hasn't left yet. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, he still codes. We we need to video this one day, like do a Twitch stream. But he uses pedals to code. So I didn't know that. <laughs> to switch to switch uh, Windows very quickly, I see, right? So I see. Got, like... That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I play piano, but I always was stunned the organist because they were using their feet. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you find these great pods inside even big companies, but, but what, what can kill it is bad management, and that seems like a plague. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, it, uh, how, how does Brave... Dudes, man, how big are you guys now? <laughs> that, that's, the, that's the part where I'm notionally weak because I was an engineer for a long time, but I've learned a lot uh, and I was managing a 420-person team at Mozilla uh, for the last year and a third. Uh, we're about 100 plus because we have a sales force that's doing that too because we're selling sort of ad or audience to cool. yeah, yeah, ad buyers. Yeah. The, the challenges there are even at that scale coming to the fore. You want to go fast. You want to avoid everything's going through these sort of deep hierarchies where naturally, even no matter how talented somebody who's at the top and is, is, is becoming a bottleneck, how do you get around that? You know, there are technical things you do or things you do in design, like have a design language that can help. But a lot of it comes down to forging, uh, sometimes independent of the org chart that people need for career, you know, mentoring and title progression, a separate graph that connects people into more efficient smaller pods that can come and go as they needed that cross disciplines and combine people into effective teams that are sometimes quite small and uh, then you still have this art of uh, psychological problem really how do you motivate people how do you get the people who uh, do have real strengths of leadership to to run these things sometimes you have you know at any scale but certainly you get to 100 people you'll have people who have ambitions in one area and strengths in others and you have to sort of help them see how to play to their strengths. Maybe they can step up in the new area they aspire to, but you don't want to necessarily bet the farm on them. So you have to really work with people, I think, uh, independent of comp. It's more about getting interesting ideas in front of them, getting them the right degree of trust and and power. Uh, and that's where I think having a technical approach really matters. I think this has been a challenge for people at Brave, and I think it was a hallmark of Mozilla. You have to be really pretty technically strong. and that doesn't make a great product necessarily because engineers don't necessarily yeah, do yeah, that great yeah. time. So uh, as you grow, you want to avoid just being having the engineers dominate, but you do need that technical strength, especially to make critical product calls. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But that is like a very tough challenge. 
Even if, even if your primary customers are other developers. Right. Yeah. Uh, people talk nowadays in sort of um, coded language about empathy and so on. But I think that using your own stuff is super important. This was so-called dog food, your own yeah. builds from an early state. We did it at Mozilla in the old days. Continuous integration with testing so you, you can't, you know, push garbage, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which I think is now standard practice with yeah. GitHub. But it, in the early days of Mozilla, that wasn't. We were all using a CVS yeah. repository and people yeah. could trash it. Yeah, I remember CVS. <laughs> I don't miss it. Yeah, yeah, I don't miss that at all. Um, cool. I mean, the, like that—that's I think covers a lot. Like an awesome episode. I'd, I'd love to do one and just. How do we engineer software? <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How do humans actually end up writing software? That that's a, that would be a fun episode to do one day. Yeah, uh, I'm a little removed from that, but I remember in grad school in the. Um, early mid eighties, software engineering was this whole thing. Uh, and it was waterfall, but it was concerned with tools and structure editors where yeah. people could use whatever coding style they liked and the, the, the AST would be shared and then you project it through your personal stuff. Now people do this with JavaScript, but they, they still want to see the same style. So they use linters and standard JS and all that. I, I think uh, the, some ways not, not much has improved there. I'll say one thing about this. This is an area where people still use print statements or console.log to debug. And you, yeah. you try to fence the wolf in, right? Yeah. You binary search through a large space. If that's if binary search is such a powerful tool that all you need is like an LED light to go on or off. I have a friend from XMozilla, a principal engineer, who's doing this um, record and replay debugger based on very clever use of the, the, count, the time the instruction counters in Intel. And uh, it's the RR project, but the company's called Pronosco, which is Latin. Oh, knowledge and so they can you can do like reasoning from effects back to causes you can say who, who scrubbed this value and you can see the whole call stack of who wrote it last you can go back from there you can time warp i think there is room for improvement in debugging tools i'll, I'll leave it at that yeah. cool thing about blockchains is right you have an immutable record of all the of all the instructions that caused yes. this particular bug <laughs> and, and who signed them <laughs> shouldn't the web be like that i mean yeah, I, I, I go to the web archive and i find pages missing because people have been censoring yeah. with robots yeah. Bad. We'll get there. Cool. Blockchain internet. <laughs> for sure, yeah. Um, so, uh, want to thank you for coming here. It's been awesome to have Brendan Ike in our uh, Solana podcast. Uh, and um, again, I'm super excited to see Brave and like the success you guys been have already accomplished to just build on top of that. Thanks. My pleasure to be here. Thanks. Cool. Awesome.